0: Welcome back to another episode of The Medical Republic, a podcast for GPs which is following the latest information as the COVID-19 crisis unfolds. I'm Francine Crimmins. On today's program, we're talking about effective communication during the COVID-19 crisis with an expert in the adoption of public health policy in the community. Should we be impressed by how many people were so quick to follow the health advice? And what's going to happen in the weeks to come when the coronavirus starts to feel like less of a threat to the public. I'm joined on the program by Professor Julie Leask, a social scientist and professor in the School of Nursing and Midwifery in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. Thank you for joining me on the show, Professor Leask. You're welcome. So, Professor Leesk, you're a social scientist and you've done extensive research in public health and especially in areas of immunisation uptake, policy programs and the communication issues that can occur in public health. Arguably, in the last few weeks, we've had mass rollout of public health guidance in the wake of coronavirus. I wanted to start by asking... Uh, your view and your experience of what usually happens when a new set of ideas or preventative measures is introduced to the public?
1: Well, this is really incredible how much change we've seen in people's behaviours over such a short period of time when you think about the, you know, sometimes years it takes to achieve um, changes in the way we drive or um, uptake of tobacco, for example, um, physical activity, You know, major, major reforms in public health that have had big impacts on the health of people usually take many years, and you get these, you know, these groups, the early adopters, the and right through to the laggards who take a while to come around. But with COVID, we've seen such a, a high risk appraisal and high levels of cooperation, such that we've seen really unprecedented levels of behaviour change in Australia in a fairly short time. And we're seeing the impacts of that on that big uh, reduction in
0: um, the the new cases each day. Definitely. And I wanted to ask, there has to be some spectrum of ways that people are responding differently to the advice that is being rolled out. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how many people usually adhere, what percentage we're looking at of people that usually won't follow the advice and what this could mean in pandemic control.
1: Yeah you're only really getting a sense of that now from some of the polling coming out and of course any kind of social research has limitations with its samples but I would broadly put people into three different categories around COVID and the prevention measures and the attitudes needed. Um, One is the hypervigilant another is the people who are just getting the balance right and the other who are not doing enough and the hypervigilant are um you know reasonable proportion I think in a a recent poll from um essential research there were a group who thought that there are 29 percent who thought that the threat of COVID-19 had been underestimated um so there's possibly an indication of how many think we are not doing enough. Um, And then there's 13% who think there's been an overreaction to the threat of COVID. And that's probably the group who need the most attention because you may be less likely to see cooperation from that group in terms of the behavior changes that are needed um, for us all to contribute to the greater
0: good of preventing transmission of this disease. I think one of the most shocking things for me is that when you're reading what healthcare professionals are doing, which is essentially changing the entire way that they practice and see patients and even moving into telehealth. And last week I was reading that, you know, there will be some people in society that have only just started washing their hands as per the original advice, which is quite shocking.
1: Yes, although, I mean, some of the research suggests that uptake of extra hand washing, for example, there are pretty high rates of that. So I guess we've always got to be careful that when we hear something's happening or see something happening that we don't assume that um, that's necessarily the majority who are practising that. Uh, But you're right that not only do we need to have massive behaviour change from... The public but also from professionals in hospital care, uh, in primary care, uh, across many different health sectors in aged care Uh, and that is key really to uh, preventing transmission within healthcare facilities Uh, and also I think you know there's been a lot of public focus in terms of the public behaviour on social distancing because that's the kind of thing that you can easily get photos of, you know, young people crowding together on the top floor of a backpack or hostel, for example, and, and, you know, that will ignite outrage of the public who don't think that enough is being done or or are doing their bit and seeing others not doing their bit. However, what's, as um, your audience will know, is really key in controlling uh, this disease is very rapid case ascertainment and rapid contact tracing so of all the things those would be the highest priority and and a high rate of testing so that you get that uh, ability to, to slow down reduce stop chains of transmission before they you know spread like wildfire and this is turning out to be a reasonably infectious disease it's got a reproductive number of about three so three two to three people are infected for every one case the good news about what we've been doing in Australia is that the effective reproductive number is now um, around 0.5, it's less than one. So what we've been doing has reduced the transmissibility of COVID-19. But yes, there's a many, many different behaviours, changes needed from many different sectors. And there's gonna be different kinds of responses. There's gonna be a real diversity of responses. The most important thing is that where the key behaviours are needed, is a high uptake of those
0: behaviours. So given the slightly lower rate that you just mentioned that we're seeing in Australia, do you think that in the long term we should be quite impressed by the adoption of the public health guidance during this pandemic? Or is there still room left to be desired?
1: Frankly, it's been, it's been very positive. You know, we went at a stage in March where all of us were feeling fearful of what was ahead Uh, And we know that people in high acuity settings were particularly fearful of um, the workload uh, increase, um, being able to manage, having enough beds, having enough ventilators, and their own personal protection, the availability of PPE. We've gone from that situation through to a situation where the control of COVID has seen uh, a big downturn in daily uh, cases notified and hope that we'll really be able to get quite some quite quite strong control of the disease. Um, There's varying opinions about whether eradication is possible. Certainly suppression is showing that um, that we've been able to um, get that happening. However, we don't want to be complacent and what's going to be ahead is the need to continue to do things that are effective in minimising transmission and they may be more sort of pointy things like these apps for rapid contact tracing uh, and that might sort of buy some social distancing credit if you like in that we may be able to have a bit more contact in uh, workplaces and so forth. Uh, But it's, it will need the public to still see COVID as a risk and professionals as well, and to still be responding and being on board with the measures that are needed and having really high levels of cooperation with that. And that is an immense communication task for government and for organisations.
0: Yes, it definitely is an immense task to try and keep the public on board with obeying the guidance Uh, during this pandemic. Sometimes we see with other areas of public health that the reaction can be quite strong at first and then wane slightly. Do you have any reasons for why this could be the case and why we don't see the same reaction to other public health messaging that could save lives? Habits are really hard to change. So people have to believe and see
1: great benefit in what they're doing to change their habits so it's probably it it definitely would be easier to adopt new hand hygiene habits than it would be to quit smoking so it's about the nature of the behavior that's required as well and how many um, sort of factors weigh in either direction what the perceived benefit of the behavior is do I want to be able to drive, go out driving and have a few drinks and then drive home? You know, that, that would probably have been seen as highly beneficial and it really did take quite strong regulation around um, drink driving to reduce that uh, along with, you know, changing motivations. So I think we've still got a challenge with COVID-19 because, as I said, we've got a whole raft of behaviours and high levels of cooperation that are needed, and in fact, have helped reduce COVID dramatically. But now we've got to sustain some of those behaviours and understand why they're being sustained and have the motivation to keep that up. And that's going to be challenging for government because what we're seeing already from some elements of the business sector is this rhetoric that we've gone too far and great cost to the economy which is true but that we've gone too far and we can indeed relax most of what we're doing now and just have this strategy where we just sort of keep older people isolated and let everyone else just go back to normal life and we will hear that start to hear more and more of that pushback from certain commentators and voices um, that that will exemplify one of the big problems around prevention. When you do prevention, once you've prevented something, it's harder to motivate people because the the thing that you've prevented is not there, and then it comes back. So you see this with vaccine safety scares. You know, your audience will be familiar with the MMR autism scare that really took fire um, starting in 1998 the publication of a case series study by Andrew Wakefield and colleagues in The Lancet and that study was you know pretty poor quality for determining causation of much at all but it caught fire it um, grabbed the public imagination the UK press were right into it and we saw a big reduction in measles MMR vaccination rates in the UK um, around 10% nationally and much more in some areas. And then, of course, measles came back. Vaccination rates go down, disease, diseases come back. People then recognise what vaccination is actually preventing because they have those outcomes much more highly available to them and they appreciate it again. So you get this cycling through of motivation or appreciation for vaccination it goes up and down and, of course, the diseases will follow and it's been described in the literature by Chen and Hibbs. So you take that vaccination example and you turn to COVID where once you reduce the rates of the disease in Australia, people's um, threat appraisal will reduce and there will be a little bit less motivation to keep acting in ways that are quite costly to our lives that help prevent the disease. Unfortunately, uh, there'll hopefully be uh, some, you know, shifting of the current restrictions such that we'll have things that we can return to uh, in a way that minimizes risk, things that we still can't return to like international travel. But that will mean that as we go, we might have pressure to um, da- downscale an awful lot and then we'll see disease rates go up again because COVID will presumably still be around. So you'll have this sort of cycling through of um, over the next few months, probably a series of little natural experiments of what happens to our rates of COVID if we do this or do that, or if we uh, you know, allow people to be in groups of three or more in a public place or sit together in a cafe, for example. Um, And I'm not saying all those things are being considered. They're just examples of the sorts of things that could be thought about. And it will be very interesting to see how the disease responds, how people respond, and that feedback loop will be ongoing. All of these changes are going to be needed over a long period of time. We've had this sort of promise of a vaccine that will be 12 to 18 months away but there's no guarantee that we'll be able to get a vaccine that's effective uh, enough against this. And so we'll have to start thinking about what life looks like if we have to live this disease for a period of time and how can we keep that suppression
0: happening. You've just brought up probably one of the things that... GPs are facing at the moment and will do so more in the coming months is patients asking them questions about potential cures or vaccines or the rollback of some of these stricter social distancing measures. I was going to ask what GPs can do to manage the trend of misinformation that's happening during this pandemic. I know that some reception staff are currently being overwhelmed by questions that are based on very misleading information. And once the patient comes in, GPs are also being asked questions based on uh, quite absurd (laughs) science, if you could even call it that. So I was wondering what kind of strategies practices could employ to deal with this. Misinformation is a really tricky one because
1: We've, we're still in the process of getting our correct information established. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty and, around how this virus behaves, what it does to the body, what the ongoing effects of it are. Uh, there's uncertainty about how it's transmitted to the extent that you know, they're they're looking into how much it can travel in the air from a case to another person, how long the virus survives on surfaces, etc. cetera. Um, how do we best control it? All of those things involve uncertainty. So just simply getting the right information established is difficult and I think that's part of the atmosphere that might sort of create the right conditions for misinformation to prevail because people have this huge hunger for knowledge and effective means to prevent COVID disease and to reduce their chance of getting it. So, you know, one um, email that sort of went around um, almost virally was this email that purported to be from a healthcare worker in a hospital who had discovered that you can drink hot drinks and that will You know, reduce what that will kill the virus, and all these sort of folk remedies will kill the virus. (laughs) If only, have no sort of basis, very, very little basis. There was also a deeply concerning story about misinformation around drinking alcohol to cure yourself of COVID. And there was a report on a, a US TV network, Fox News where a young man had been living in Wuhan and had COVID and he ended up getting, um, he got better, but he happened to be drinking whiskey and honey at the time that he was getting better. And he therefore did this whole sort of logical fallacy of post hoc, ergo propter hoc after the fact, therefore because of it. And Fox News reported this. And then what happened after that was that, this idea of alcohol curing COVID caught fire in Iran where you saw this cluster of people who had taken what they thought was alcohol, actually had consumed methanol and, and there had been quite a, um, you know, a cluster of methanol poisoning, including a, a child who had to be ventilated, according to this news story, and, and, and then suffered visual impairment. So misinformation can do incredible harm if people do things that are dangerous with that misinformation. So what does that mean for the, the GP, the practice nurse who's faced with someone or the person at the reception desk who's faced with someone who has these um, folk ideas that have very little basis? Well, the first thing is to figure out whether it's dangerous form of misinformation because there's no point in having a great big debate with somebody who's absolutely committed to this idea and it's not actually going to do them much harm you really want to save your time and energy for misinformation that could do harm where that person clearly has has trusted the sender of the misinformation and then it's worth checking out how open they are to hearing a counter-argument so you know, I will occasionally be, you, you'll be, you'll be able to sense whether people are actually asking whether this is true or whether they've decided it's true and they're going ahead with it come hell or high water. And sometimes just simply asking the question, do you mind if I share with you my thoughts on that, can help you gauge very quickly where they're at and whether they're um, open and amenable to hearing your evidence-based information. There's also some suggestions that if people, have, if people are committed to this idea that X causes Y and you know it's wrong, you ask them how they think that might happen. For example, how are you thinking that drinking whiskey each night will help cure COVID? What are you actually thinking might happen? And once people um, try to describe the mechanism, they often realise that they're not as knowledgeable about that mechanism as they thought they were or they'll reveal that because they thought that putting alcohol on a surface clears the surface, maybe it cleans the body inside as well. And you can then address that perception. Um, Once people lose confidence in their belief that a certain mechanism is occurring you're more likely to be able to come in with your correct information. But then of course, time is of the essence. So GPs are um, time poor. And so it might be worth, if there's a common myth, starting to think about systematizing the way that misinformation is addressed. For example, checking out your WHO website or your state and territory health department website where a lot of the, um, there's actually quite a lot of useful information on those websites, including some fact sheets that are translated as well. So just having a fact sheet available that addresses those concerns is very useful. We've done that with our talking about immunization.org.au website, uh, where we have typical sort of Q and A's to the most common myths about vaccination and that um, has been very useful for GPs and practice nurses in addressing concerns about vaccinations. So, you know, maybe having some resources ready for the more
0: common myths and concerns is a good idea as well. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the Medical Republic podcast and for sharing your great knowledge of debunking some of those COVID-19 myths with patients. Well, you're most welcome, Francine. And for all our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Medical Republic. If you're hungry for more information as the coronavirus unfolds around the world, you can follow our live blog, which is updated to the hour on our website. And you can also get in touch with our journalists at any stage as well. All of our emails can be found on the website. Thanks for listening.